Amen. Week two, recognizing emptiness. Well, last week we saw in Acts chapter one how the first instructions to the disciples after Jesus left was two words. And if you remember it, shout it out. Just wait. Just wait. He says, before you go anything, I need you to just wait in uh, Jerusalem until you are baptized with the helper I'm sending. That helper is the Holy... Y'all with it tonight? That helper is the who? The Holy Spirit. He says, I'm sending you a helper. I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit because you're going to need power to do what I need you to do. You cannot do this on your own. So before you do anything... As he was going up in the clouds, he says, you go back and you just wait until you get the power. Well, they have waited. There were many in the upper room, about 120. Peter last week stood up as a leader for the first time and gave a word of wisdom about what to do in light of Judas betraying Jesus, that he had to be what? Replaced. And um, in the most godly sense of the way to be replaced, they were directed in prayer to throw some dice and pick the one who was going to replace Judas. And if you don't get that, just listen to the message last week, and you will see that dice throwing was very much the command of God. It was in Proverbs. Proverbs said that um, the, the, whatever we do, throw the dice, and God will decide how they land, and that's exactly what they did, and they chose the replacement. So they have chose the replacement for Judas, and they are still together just waiting. So we open up with Acts chapter 2, and we're just going to read verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, everybody say Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And I wanted to move on from that, but the word Pentecost kept jumping out to me because if you haven't figured it out yet, one thing that I really believe God has directed me to do in this season is to bring some truth to some things that people have made a little um, not so significant or maybe have um, gone to a different significance without knowing the context. And the word Pentecost stood out to me um, because it says on the day of Pentecost, all the believers meeting together in one place. And when everyone thinks of Pentecost, they think of 50 days after Easter, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. The reason it was 50 days that people in the church celebrate Pentecost was because Jesus was on the earth for 40 days teaching the king about the kingdom. And then when he left, it was another 10 days before this happens in Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit falls down like a rushing wind comes through the room, tongues of fire fell and all these things. And the, the Christian church calls that Pentecost. But what's interesting is that it says on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Pentecost was there before they knew what was about to come. Pentecost was there before any sort of Holy Spirit came into the room. So Pentecost must be something more than just what we recognize as 50 days after Easter. And Pentecost was actually a Jewish feast. It was the Feast of Pentecost. It was a Jewish feast that happened 50 days after Passover. It's very interesting. We, 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 we put this pagan idea on, e and we call it Easter, you know, the holiday of Easter, and we turn it into the resurrection. That's, that's when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And then we talk about Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came down. But originally, there was a time of Passover, and then 50 days after Passover, Jewish festival, everyone would gather around to have the Feast of Pentecost. And the Feast of Pentecost was actually the most attended feast out of all the Jewish festivals. 
And what it was actually, they celebrated the first fruits of their wheat harvest. Now, if you're here during the Reign of David series, I talked about the wheat harvest in the story of David. It, after the wheat harvest, they would celebrate the first fruits after um, they, 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 they would, it would start to produce fruit. They would celebrate these first fruits, and they called that day Pentecost. In Numbers, actually, is re- Pentecost is referred to as the day of first fruits. The Feast of Pentecost was the day of first fruits. So the disciples were not waiting for Pentecost to happen. The disciples had no expectation of when, no expectation of how. They were just waiting. The only thing they knew was that Jesus told us, wait here until the Holy Spirit comes. And I find it interesting that on the day of first fruits, the disciples received the Holy Spirit in a new way, a full way, a fully baptized way. Because they've had communication with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it says, was speaking through Jesus. I taught last week how when Peter stood up, it was the first time he took a position as a leader. It was the first time he actually spoke a word of knowledge. So I would even argue that the first manifestation of the Holy Spirit wasn't the full baptism in the fire. It was Peter standing up and giving a word of wisdom about the events that were taking place because they were seeking God. They were trying to figure out what to do. This whole time they watched the Holy Spirit lead Jesus. They watched. They had an idea of what the Holy Spirit was. they didn't know what to expect when Jesus said you are going to be baptized fully in this thing and power is going to come through you and I find it interesting that the first fruit in the disciples waiting was the, the first fruit in the absence of Jesus was something greater on the day of first fruit they got the first fruit of Jesus' absence he left they waited And on the day of first fruit, their first fruit was an immersion in the Holy Spirit. And I find it interesting that the church is waiting on the fruit of God in our congregations. And many of us are waiting on the Holy Spirit to do something instead of seeking to qualify to be able to even produce the first fruit. I say we need to get back to Acts and let the first fruit of our ministry not be um, another campaign. The first fruit of our ministry doesn't need to be another event we put on. The first fruit of a congregation should be a total immersion in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And just to make sure we're on the same page, when I say baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm a big believer, and I taught it last week, when you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit, but it is a different thing to be baptized in it, not according to when the Father wants to do it, but according to when you want to immerse yourself in what you already have so that you are baptized in what is in you. You immerse yourself in the Holy Spirit and then his power is manifest. And the first fruits of the power of the full immersion of the Holy Spirit came on the day of first fruit because of one thing. They weren't seeking Pentecost and they weren't seeking fire. They were not seeking anything but just seeking and waiting. And the church needs to get back to that where we're not trying to produce anything. We're not trying to qualify what kind of fruit it is. We need to get back to the place where we're seeking God so that he sees us as a worthy tree to manifest whatever kind of fruit he wants. 
And the fruit here in Acts chapter 2 we're about to see looked a certain way. It looked like fire, wind coming through the room, speaking in tongues. But what we do as a church, what the church has done is, is certain denominations try to say, well, this is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. No, it's how it happened to them out of the place of seeking. And what we do is we say, oh, if this happens to you, then you must have sought. But God says, no, seek me and let me manifest whatever kind of fruit I want to manifest. Are we following? And in order to receive that first fruit, they were unified in one thing, recognizing their emptiness. Being empty and powerless. They knew that Jesus was on to something, obviously. They said, if we have to wait for power, then let's seek him in a humble position and realize our lack thereof. And I think so many times in the house of God, and I've been guilty of it here at Relentless, we try to seek over and over and we try to strategize. We, kind of, we try to come up with our own ways, even though we say things like our God is higher than us and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways, but we try to get the way together and submit it before God, and God's like, no, 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 no. I want you to realize how empty you are and how powerless you are without me and let me be the thing that fills you up. We sing songs like, fill me up, God, fill me up, and God's like, well, when are you going to remove something? And we kind of laugh and we chuckle, but the truth of it is real. The Bible talks about a stony heart. You are so full of stones of offense that God has no room to put anything in. Let me say that again. You've got so many stones of offense in you. Your daddy didn't treat you right growing up. Your mama wasn't there. Your boyfriend did this. You had a failed marriage. You went through abuse. You had this. You went through an addiction. You had this. And you had this stone saying, I can't let go of this because this is my defense. This is my identity. This is who I am. And God says, I cannot give you an, a picture of who you are because you're still holding on to a stone of what your daddy convinced you you were. We have these stones, and God's like, I want to fill you up, but before I can, can you recognize that you are nothing without me? Not you are nothing because of something else. I want to give you power. I want to give you identity in me, but you have got to come to me empty. And that's exactly what these disciples did. Because think about it. They could have done some things. They, they walked with Jesus for three years. They knew his routine. They could have very well gone to Jerusalem and started say, like getting in the boat just like Jesus did out in the water and started teaching about parables and nursery rhymes. They could have repeated the sermons. They could have done a lot of stuff, but they didn't. They said no matter what experience we've had, no matter how long we've walked with Jesus, let me say that again, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, you still need to come before God and say I am empty and powerless without you. And there's too many seasoned Christians who rely too much on their season instead of being molded into a new wineskin to carry new wine for a new season. And that new season looking more like the former season called the Garden of Eden. And these disciples, that's where they're at. They're like, you know what? We know what we're doing. We've seen devils cast out. We have seen two loaves and five fish feed a bunch of people. But we're just going to surrender all that and we're going to say we're nothing without the Holy Spirit. 
And we don't know what exactly that looks like. So we're just going to come together and seek him in our empty place. They were totally relying on God. And when they came together, they had a revelation of need. And I think the more and more we come together, we need to realize our need. Well, you don't know my story. I've been a Christian for this many years, and I've seen this, and I've seen stuff. You know, I really don't care what you've seen. They saw a man walk out of a grave before Jesus was crucified, and they still said, we don't know what we're going to do, so we're just going to sit and wait. And because of that, look what happens in verse 2. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house while they were sitting. You know what that tells me? The fact that they're sitting, they had no expectation of when. They, they didn't have anyone say, stand, stand up. Y'all know, how the, y'all know how churches do. Let's get ready for God. Stand up. Lift your hands. God's coming. That looks more like a toilet posture, but, you know, God. They weren't, they weren't trying to act anything out. They weren't trying to, to, to try to get ready. Their ready was, we're empty without you. And it says, while they were sitting, and this is where we get it wrong. Everyone talks about in the upper room, a wind came through and blew through the room and, and their hair must have been going all crazy and, and all a wind came. No, a wind did not come. Let's look at the scripture again. Put it back up there. There was a sound like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. A sound like wind came. Why did I point that out? You know when the first mention of the Holy Spirit was? Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and the darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. What's that lyric we were singing earlier? Spirit come moving over the water, Spirit come move over, like the Spirit, what is it? Come on, come on, you sang it, you better know it. Come on, what is it? Like the Spirit was moving over the water, Spirit come move over us. Come rest on us. Come rest on. That's where this came from. You passed. <laughs> the earth was formless, empty. The darkness covered. The, the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. The word for spirit of God, and if you've ever come to our foundations class, you would know this. It actually means breath or wind. The words ruach or pneuma. A wind did not come in the room. The power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit came in the room, and the only way they could describe it, it sounded like a mighty windstorm. When God moves, it can happen suddenly. It's tangible. It's real. It's from heaven. And it is so mighty that it comes in the form of power that we cannot even describe without referencing it to something that can destroy things. Who's preaching here? (laughs) Just kidding. That's the future preacher right there. 
That's the only thing they could attribute to, a mighty windstorm. The Holy Spirit sounded like something that was going to tear everything apart. And that's exactly what he wants. He says, I want you to be willing to let your entire self be so wrecked and torn by my power that I can invade the temple that I bought and change everything. Think about it. He bought you and says, you are now my temple. And my temple looks a certain way. It's got certain color curtains. It's got certain size rooms. It's got certain dimensions. It's got certain stones. It's got certain diamonds. It's got, it's got gold. It's got silver. It was described in the tabernacle that Moses built and David built. And God's like, you are now my temple. I've got a certain blueprint. Let me come through you like a mighty windstorm. Tear everything out and fill you up. And that's what the disciples did. They were like, yeah, we're, we're just going to empty ourselves. And they were so empty that they were just sitting there waiting. And it says, while they were sitting, the Holy Spirit came, and it sounded like a mighty windstorm. Can you imagine that day? And many people get the upper room mixed up. We think it was like the small room, like maybe the half the size of this. But for that many people of what we're going to see happens, it was probably around the temple area. Because we're, we're about to find out that people heard what was going on. But can you imagine 120 people, probably scared to death because the guy they're following just got killed and everyone wants to kill everyone involved. And they're just sitting there waiting, saying we're empty. And then power came that they were not expecting on the day of the Feast of Pentecost, and it sounded like a mighty windstorm. What I find interesting is that it doesn't say, and they stood up in fear, or and they ran. Because I don't know about you, but if I was just chilling in Savannah, Georgia, like worshiping the, you know, hill song, and a mighty windstorm came through my apartment, I don't think I would just be sitting I'd be breaking some glass, you know, like running out the door. But it says they were sitting. They were so at peace and involved with seeking that what came through didn't disturb them. Instead, it did something else. Look what happens in the, well, actually, before I tell you what happens, um, yeah, actually, I'm going to tell you what happens. Look at verse 3. And then... What looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Now, remember in the reign of David, God told David that he couldn't build the temple because the temple was for, leave that verse up there. The temple was for the presence of God to rest. It says, David, you're not a man of rest. You were a man of bloodshed. But your son Solomon, who was referred to as a man of rest, will build the temple. Because the temple of God is meant to rest. And their temple, they were so empty. Look, it settled. Tongues of fire appeared and settled on them because they were in a place of emptiness and a place of rest. Resting in his presence, seeking him, waiting on the thing. And when I read that, it says that when what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, I started to ask, why did it look like fire? Because remember, the power of God came, and we see the first fruits. It looked like the power came, it sounded like a windstorm, and fire was just chewing on top of their head. 
It reminds me of that scene in the 1990s movie Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when Splinter appears like fire. Y'all ain't, if y'all ain't seen that, y'all need to get saved. But <laughs> it says flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And I began to ask, why fire? Why didn't it look like anything else? And then I remember Matthew 3.11. John the Baptist talking. It says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone's coming soon who is greater than I am. He's so much greater that I'm not even worthy to, to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Why fire? A refiner uses fire for one thing, to purify. We need to recognize your emptiness so that we can jump into the baptism of the Holy Spirit because there's a process of refining that has to come in order for him to fill up your empty place. It's settled on each of them. They are recognized in their emptiness so much and their need for power that the thing that manifested was a refining flame. Because some things had to be refined before he can fully rest in you. And we focus on so much about the do's. I need to read my Bible. I need to come to church. I need to do this. And God's like, that's all great. But you can go serve in church all day and you can serve and outreach all the time and you can sing your worship songs all you want but if I have you if you have not created a place for refinement it's all worthless it says it's the refining fire it it's settled on each of them I think that's really really amazing because in the old covenant the only time the Holy Spirit was ever mentioned to settle on anything was Israel as a nation. But because Jesus opened up a new covenant in his blood, he says it no longer settles over just a nation or a thing. It settles on each and every one of you. That's what Jesus bought. It was a new level of his power and his presence settling in each and every one of us. And with that level of knowledge, how can we walk around as sons and daughters of God and say things like God is in me, but you keep making bad decisions? Because if you've truly created a place of emptiness for a refinement to come in, then he is refining your thoughts and your thinking and your ways so much that everything you start to choose starts to line up with his leading rather than your wants and desires. And if you continue to make these choices, putting you down these roads that end to failure and disaster and depression and anxiety, I say when you get home tonight, the first thing you need to say is not, God, forgive me for doing the wrong thing. It's start to create some empty place and seek him so that his power can finally rest in you. Because it's in you, but you haven't created any place for it to rest. You haven't given him any, any sort of lead. It's what I want. It's what I do. It's we pick what we want. We go through the motions and we don't allow God to do anything. These disciples fully recognize their need for emptiness. 
And out of that, the presence of God came into the room. It sounded like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues like flames of fire rested on them. You see, the whole purpose of Jesus was not just to save you, but it was to redeem your emptiness with a new filling that purifies you. What if the fire settling on each of us is marked by our refining? I don't know about you, but I would love that. I would love for people to see me and, and, and say, I saw fire resting on you. You've got to create that space for that to happen. That's what they did. They weren't waiting on Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the day of first fruit, they were so in recognition of their emptiness without him and their desperation for him that it created a place for the Holy Spirit to settle upon them. Is this okay? And I would even say this. When you're alone, a degree of refining can happen. But if we came together in seeking, imagine what can be removed. Because it was when, it was, it was when they were together that the power came in such a mighty way that tongues of fire, the flaming, started to rest upon them. And there's so many false teachings out there saying, well, you can get just as much God by yourself at home as you can in a congregation. It is schemes of the enemy. And I'm not saying that to, to build big numbers. Y'all know the vision of this church. We want to stay under 150 people, raise up pastors and leaders, and create more. That's what we're supposed to do, equip and send, equip and send, equip and send. But we've, we've embraced this doctrine of, well, I can watch church on YouTube or Facebook Live or whatever it is, and I can be at home and I'm good to go. But what you're doing, you're robbing yourself of a greater degree of refinement as we come together and seek. And not to, just to beat you up, but let's celebrate the worship that I saw tonight in this house was the greatest degree I've seen in a long time. So we're getting it. We're starting to go there. Amen? Come on. But we can't let that be the pinnacle. Next week needs to look, make this week look elementary. But it's based off of seeking and creating empty places for refining. He needs to refine our worship. He needs to refine our tongue. He needs to refine what we carry with us. He needs to refine everything. So every time you think you're this and you think you're that is, I am empty without you. I can't do a thing without you, God. And look what happens in verses 4 through 11. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Hmm. Not when they felt like it was appropriate. When the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. They didn't turn that on. The Holy Spirit did. Just throwing that out there. Verse 5. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, uh, Pontus, the province of Asia, uh, Phrygia, uh, 
pamphlet, uh, <laughs> Egypt and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews, converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, and we are all here. These people are speaking our languages about the wonderful things God's done. I don't know what the language of pamphlet is, but <laughs> I want to point out a few things. If someone in my congregation has called me stupid, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. They were not speaking a heavenly language of tongues in Acts chapter 2. Now, let me make sure I qualify this. The, the, the gift of tongues is a real thing. And the gift of a heavenly prayer language of tongues and one to be spoken over a congregation are very real things. But that is not what's happening in Acts chapter 2. So can someone tell people when they put on Facebook about the heavenly language in Acts chapter 2, please tell them they're wrong and to read the flipping story. <laughs> the manifestation was not a heavenly language. It was the ability to speak in 15 dialects that they had no education of. They, were, they had never been taught the language of pamphlet or from Mesopotamia or Egypt. Is that like Egyptian, I guess? Maybe, I don't know. They, they, they didn't know this stuff. And another thing I want to point out, it caused all the Jews living in Jerusalem to run to the church meeting of the seekers. Not advertisement. Not an evangelism crusade. What was manifesting out of their seeking caused the Jews to run to them. And number three, nothing else in these ten days caused the Jews to come. Let me, let me make sure we, we understand something. Jesus was for 40 days on the earth teaching the kingdom. He left, and these guys were seeking and wanting the power of the Holy Spirit for 10 days. For 10 days, they were coming together. They were eating together. They were fellowshipping, and they were praying. They were studying 10 days, and no one said a thing. I kind of look at that as a picture of the church. We're meeting together. We're having Bible studies. We're having prayer. We take communion. We're fasting. But I don't see anyone running to the church. If anything, the church is trying to become like the culture so much to get people to just walk through the door and say, oh, thank God you're here. Here's a cup of coffee. We love you. Which we do too. I'm not, going, I'm not trying to put it, I mean, I, I'm about to break, stop doing the coffee to, so I can be like real with what I preach. <laughs> I'm just, just kidding. Coffee's for the believers. Um, <laughs> where was I at? But no one is running to the church. The church is trying to get all these people to come in. For 10 days, no one ran to the church. But when the power of God started to manifest, all the Jews there went there. And that tells us something about the gift that God gives you as a result of recognizing emptiness. Its purpose is for him to draw people to what's going on. 
and not you alone. And when we try to get people to come to church by our efforts, that's not recognizing emptiness. That's saying, look what we've got. But if we shifted to seeking of what we don't have, what if the manifestation of power would cause people to say, what just filled you? What's happening? Because what's happening here looks different to us, but it's, it's drawing us in. And what happened? They were talking in all these dialects. You remember, why are all these Jews here? Because it was the day of the Feast of Pentecost. It was the most attended feast in the Jewish culture. So the day, it, see, we, we always look at Pentecost as it's 50 days when the power of the Holy Spirit came. That's not what, that is not what is significant about Pentecost. What's significant is the day the Holy Spirit came was the day where the most people were there to see the manifestation of the power. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he had the perfect strategy, and the disciples never said, well, maybe we can get people when they're all here. No, they were sitting and seeking, and it happened to be that on the day when the most Jews were in town, they started speaking 15 different languages, languages that they could not speak of. In the passage we just read, it says that they were Galileans. Galileans were known as two things. They were dumb, and they couldn't communicate. And now Jews from all around, from 15, different nationalities came to a day of Pentecost feast and they said how are these dummies talking in our language and they ran to the room and started asking questions Maybe we need to realize what emptiness looks like. Not how good our service is, not how good our music is, not how good the preaching is, but are we recognizing that we are nothing without him and in that recognition, the continual recognition of I am nothing without him, there is such a, a transparent seeking that nothing happens without him manifesting. And the manifestation of his power out of our recognition of emptiness will draw people not to see what is relentless doing, but what just happened that doesn't sound like what we've heard. Because let's be honest, the sound of the church is no different than anything else. It's just Christianity. We're doing all the same stuff. It looks the same. Nowadays, when you go to church, it's a concert in a different formation. I mean, I mean, think about it. We need loud sound and lights to get in the presence. We're trying to create atmospheres to get with God. What are we doing? And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with excellence and all that. As you can tell, I'm all about excellence. But we're not going. You know, we're not going to come and and do light changes and and put a fog machine on. And I, I'm really like, I would love to get to a place where y'all would trust me enough to just take away all this crap and have like some candles in the room and let's just seek God together. I'm serious. Because we're looking exactly like everything else. And what got them there was not what necessarily what they were doing. But what got them there was they heard the first fruits from their seeking. In 12 and 13 it says this. They stood there amazed and perplexed. 
They said, what can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they just drunk, that's all. <laughs> they couldn't figure out how. You want to know how? They became a new wineskin that could hold new wine. That's why they thought they were drunk. In some of the original texts, it actually says, they must be full of new wine. Yeah, they were. Their wineskin was completely changed because they were emptying themselves out of everything that they thought they had, recognizing we have nothing and we need you. And a new wine poured in, and it looked and sounded like something they had never experienced before. And they didn't have an expectation of what the new wine would look like. They just sought. <laughs> they were like, they got drunk. Because we've never seen that. And look at verse 14 and 15. This is what Peter says when he says that. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. I guarantee you a Jew in that area probably went, well, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> you know why they said it was too early? Because usually at this time in the morning around nine o'clock is when they were, you weren't even supposed to eat or drink until you were done praying. That's why they said it's way too early. But in reading that, with seeing what was happening and these people thought they were drunk, I want to address something that we've gotten wrong in the church. People think that being drunk in the spirit is a thing. And it is, but we've made it look wrong. And I'm going to be very bold because this is a house that God has called me to steward. And if you don't agree with it, quite frankly, I don't care. Amen? But this is what we do. They thought they were drunk. Not because of stumbling each other over each other because the Holy Spirit fell. They didn't think they were drunk because they were shouting and hooping and hollering. They didn't think they were drunk because they were laying with blankets on them for 25 minutes. They didn't think they were drunk because they were around the altar going, Oh, oh. If you want to see that, go downtown tonight. You want to know why they thought they were drunk? Because they were doing stuff they didn't have the ability to do. They were speaking in languages they didn't know. They didn't look drunk. They only attributed their drunkenness because something was manifesting through them that they could not do without the power of God. Drunk in the spirit is not I'm stumbling in his presence. Drunk in the spirit is I am so immersed and so full of his wine that I've got the Holy Spirit drunk courage to do and be bold in whatever he tells me to do without my own limitation. That's being drunk in the spirit. Being drunk in the spirit is not this emotionally contextual, oh my gosh, I can't function. Being drunk in the spirit is you can function beyond your ability. The manifestation of power is not that you lose control. It's not, Holy Spirit, make me lose control. No, the Holy Spirit gives you control. <laughs> that, that was awesome. He, he gives you an ability he, 
to operate under what he wants. It's not you, it's not I lose control, so you see this physical loss of control. It's I lose control over my mind and let the Holy Spirit tell me what to say and what to think and what to do. And if God tells me to minister to a Hispanic person, don't let the fact that you don't know Spanish be your limitation. Because if you're drunk in him, you know what you would speak in that moment? Spanish. And if someone said, You knew Spanish, and you'd be like, What? That's what's happening here. And after being full from this posture of we need you and we're empty without you, Peter starts preaching. It says he shouted. He was preaching with boldness he didn't have before. And notice that when Peter started preaching, the tongue stopped. And they were told to listen. Which is probably why we have the instructions of order about tongues and prophecy in 1 Corinthians. See how it all ties together? And the sermon was not one from preparation, but it was given from the outflow of his seeking God. And he had an ability and courage and clarity that he would not be able to do without the power of God. And it all came out of one thing. They were recognizing their emptiness and their need for power. And this is what Peter preaches starting in verse 16. No, no, no. What you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike. Let me just say that, men and women alike. You ever had question about men and women roles in ministry? There it is, men and women alike. And they will prophesy. I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you realize what Peter just said? He just, he just said the prophet Joel prophesied about what we call the last days. And he says, and you're seeing it now. And everyone panics in the church. We're in the last days. Honey, we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. Do you realize that? We're in the last days. We've been in the last days since Peter started preaching when people were calling him drunk. Because we're walking out a prophecy of someone under the old covenant. The last days started when Jesus ascended. So stop freaking out that when you see a blood moon, it means we're going, the days are going to be ended. No, it's one of the signs of the prophecy. If anything, let's celebrate when we see it that what was prophesied is real and our God is alive. Peter says, look, it's happening right now and more will happen. But we don't need to be frightened because we can be saved by calling on the name of our Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit will be poured out on us all men and women alike, old men and young men will prophesy we can do this. And then look, it says in verse 22, it says, People of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan 
was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. I would love to be Peter in that moment. Can you imagine, like, you ever, you ever think about preachers when they have to preach something that they've been guilty of themselves? You ever think about that? Like, y'all know when, like, I preach, like, 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 don't do something, you're like, oh, I know you did that last week. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> think about Peter. He just says, y'all nailed him to the cross. This dude denied him three times ten days ago or 50 days ago. <laughs> he says, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him. I see the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken. He is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life. You will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David was not referring to himself because he was died and he was buried and David's tomb is still here. No, no, no. He was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. This is a pretty good sermon. He was saying that God would not leave him alone from the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. And now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on, upon us just as you see and hear it today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. I want to I summarize this sermon in just a few things. Peter just put it out there. He said, Jesus did miracles and signs and wonders, and you saw it. And then you killed him. Then he raised from the dead. David prophesied about it. Jesus was with us. He left us. We know it. We saw it. We saw him descend into heaven. And then the angels told us we better get back here just like Jesus told us to do. And you know it because what, we, what you're seeing, you can read about in King David's prophecy. And then, and, then, and then he says probably the most powerful thing in the message. And how do you know it's true? Because you saw the Holy Spirit poured out on us to such a degree that you came running and asked him what it was. You want to know why people ain't getting changed by sermons? Because people are not, they don't need to be running here to hear a sermon. The sermon needs to confirm what they're seeing in you. How is it that you went from an addict to successful? How is it that you went from depressed to joy? How is it that you healed that dude in Target? When Christians don't even like Target. How is it that you, ch you changed that vanilla latte into wine? How is it? How did you do these things? And then they hear the sermon. Oh, that's how. You see what happened? It wasn't just a salvation message. It was you were seeing the Holy Spirit poured out and you didn't understand, but it didn't push you away. It drew you in. Manifestations of God, true manifestations of God don't cause people to run. They cause people to wonder. 
and wonder is a door to share the truth of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and how his work continues in his disciples. I almost call this message to be continued because what we do is we read this and we say, oh, wow, that's awesome. But the message Peter was preaching was you saw what he did, you saw what happened, and now you're seeing it continue in us. And he said it can continue in you. Look what happens in verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him, well, brothers, what should we do? What was convincing them, it wasn't a service or a presentation. It was an explanation of what they were seeing. And I think that's something that was so awesome is Peter was an empty man who used, a, who used a sword to cut someone's ear off. And when he recognized the emptiness and sought God, the power of God filled him to use the sword of the Spirit to pierce their hearts. And their first response was, well, what do we do? You know what that is? We talked about Wednesday night. You can have a skill and you can have a talent, but are you using it for what you're anointed to do? Peter anointing was never to chop ears off and fish for fish. It was to preach and be the rock that Jesus would build his church upon. The first man, can you, can you imagine the honor of Peter? The first sermon preached with the first fruit of the Holy Spirit on the day of first fruits called the day of the Feast of Pentecost. So Peter replied, verse 38, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's right there. You repent, you get baptized in, in, in the name of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of your sins, and then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. And then Peter continued preaching for a long time. So don't get mad at me for preaching the hour. Strongly urging all his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. And those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000. He doesn't say earn your way here. He doesn't say go pray about it. He doesn't say hey, you need to think about what you did when you killed him. No, no, no. He says you repent, be baptized, and be filled. You've got to realize you're empty. You've got to realize you're nothing without him. And he says, if you do this, it will continue to be made known and accessible to generation after generation. I wonder how accessible is it to the next generation based off of what they're seeing in us. I was talking to a couple in here. I, I won't tell you who it is, but we, I was preaching a message not too long ago about the heart of this church. And my heart, my biggest passion is to pour so much into these kids that by the time they're teens, they're not looking to rebel. They're looking to get filled up with the power of what they have in them. <laughs> they went from 120 to 3,120 on the day of the festival of Pentecost. And what's funny is that all these Jewish people, they came to the festival of Pentecost expecting something from God but they didn't expect God to show them that their religion was now false because they didn't see the Messiah when he came. And 3,000 Jews and all these other people from the nations. Hey, yeah, we, we got this now. 
they were wrecked because they realized how empty they were. Picking up in verse 42, this is the last passage I'll read. And after all this, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Isn't that interesting? Like the way they built the church was as simple as let's go to Applebee's. Although Jesus probably would have rebuked some of the quality of Applebee's, but verse, verse, I'm just kidding. Verse 43. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. I'm going to read that over again and see if you catch it. Verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, and to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. <coughs> this is what the church does. If we find a church that's operating in signs and wonders, we'll devote ourselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, and then they saw miraculous signs and wonders. If we want to see a day where miracles and signs and wonders are the norm, it flows from a recognizing that we are empty without our fellowship, without devoting ourselves to teaching, without devoting ourselves to prayer, without devoting ourselves to communion, without devoting ourselves to fellowship with each other at dinners and lunches and breakfasts. It flowed from that. It all flowed from being together in one thing, recognizing that we are empty without him. <clears throat> Verse 44, and all the believers met together in one place and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions. By the way, you can sign over your deeds at the back tonight. They <laughs> is deeds even still a thing? Mortgages. <laughs> <laughs> They sold their property, possessions, and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes with the Lord's Supper. They shared meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all his people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. If we would just devote ourselves together in the recognizing of our emptiness, imagine what could happen. And we make so many excuses that, you know, whether it be scheduling or I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert, we, we use all this kind of stuff. And I, I know that we're, we're very busy people, and I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle that. Because the fact of the matter is that the church was working like it was supposed to, there would be so much unity that people wouldn't have to work hours that were so ridiculous to meet their needs because the church would help them meet the need. It says there was no need because they were so devoted to each other. But no one knows need because we're not devoted to each other. Everyone's too prideful to say, I need. And God says, I need you together for me to do what I want to do. I need you together seeking me, realizing how empty you are. 
I need you to devote yourselves to the teaching of the apostles. I need you to devote yourself to fellowship and communing with, with me through the Lord's Supper. I need you to pray. I need you to be together. I need you to recognize that you need me. And when we begin to recognize our need for him, there is no limit at what God can do in us and what God can do through us. People gathered from everywhere that day because they saw something they never saw before by hearing something they never heard before. And it wasn't because of a strategic campaign or a cool idea or a cultural norm. They sat and waited and recognized that they needed him. And there was such a recognition of their need that God manifested himself that caused the whole town to shift for what was happening in that upper room. And I just want to prophesy right now in the name of Jesus that we will be a church that produces a sound and a manifestation that people will turn to and run to, not because we're trying to make that happen, but we're, we're, go we're going to get passionate about our emptiness and need for him. And seek him like never before. Amen.